Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. I'd say I got the job on cruise ships. That was pretty rad. I'm, I'm, I'm on cruise ship, but, the, but I was in this troop of four clowns. The other three clowns, like, I didn't think they were rad. You know, I just didn't think they were rad. They didn't have awesome skills. Like the, the stuff that they were trying to do to be funny. I didn't think it was really funny. It's that was lame. Yeah. I thought they were lame. Yeah. And like I had my own little skill set of just like crazy tricks that like I felt really confident in, in my ability to entertain passengers and just like be, be kind of awesome. But the thing was that they were rightfully offended by me, the rest of the clowns in my troop. And they went to the cruise ship brass and they said, if Steve-O comes back for another contract, we all quit. <laughs> yeah, it was this clown mutiny. Clown mutiny <laughs> on the open seas. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I did not get a chance to watch the new special, All good. but I have the link and I'm pumped because in my brain, there was nothing funnier than watching people gag. I don't know why I love it so okay. much. It's why I used to watch Jackass. And I asked Jack, cause he watched it this morning and he was like, oh, prepare your heart, get ready. <laughs> So, well, I mean, I guess you, without like spoiler alerts for the audience, can you tell us what it's about? Just the like the blurb sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's first and foremost, it's a love story. The impetus for it was uh, kind of frustration over 
all the community guidelines and sensitivity and and uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. So I just wanted to just go overboard and do like really, really crazy stuff. Even stuff that I wouldn't be allowed to do for Jackass. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask is back in the day, were you guys, did you have the freedom when the show first started to do anything or were you mm. sort of guided? No, when the show first started, it, it was on MTV. I remember when it first got ordered from the pilot. The, the, they told me, it's not a pilot anymore. They've ordered eight episodes, so get ready to film. And right away, send us all of your best video footage so that maybe we can license it, you know, acquire it and put it on the show. So I was all excited, and I put together all my best stuff. I'd been filming since I was 15 years old. Really? Yeah. They said that out of everything I sent in, not one clip was allowed on television. And the reason for that was because if you were going to jump off of something, it couldn't be over a certain height. And that was like my specialty was jumping off really high stuff. And MTV was super touchy about fire um, because they had a lot of lawsuits. Not, not a lot of lawsuits, but like really, really substantial lawsuits yeah. um, from Beavis and Butthead and stuff. And there was some other fire things. So they had no sense of humor about fire. And I just thought, whatever you're doing, it's way crueler if you're on fire. So, uh, <laughs> and I was like jumping off stuff that was really high while on fire a lot of the time. And if it, if, if it wasn't that, then it was like something even more sort of egregiously against their standards and practices. You were so ahead of your time then. Because what, if you were doing this since you were 15... Yeah. What are you using, like, a camcorder? Yeah. It was a VHSC. I didn't want to say that, but I was <laughs> yeah. like, it probably was. What, yeah. what, what, why? Where did and that come from? Th this was at a time when the video camera was not a household item. Absolutely. Let alone in everybody's pockets. And the reason uh, I was able to start making videos when I was 15, my dad was, um, like, a wildly successful corporate executive. Okay. Yeah, he um, sort of headed up American multinational corporations in various countries around the world. So I grew up in five different countries, spoke three different languages, and um, dad participated in a, a corporate golf tournament and won this video camera, which I promptly stole from his closet. And, um, and I just got off to the races. My... Uh, Priority was making skateboarding videos. Yeah, I wondered. Yeah, that's what you do. That's you know, what, yeah. it was on. the skateboard that led me to the video camera. Yeah, and what I loved about it was that I could edit out the fails. You know, you could effectively manipulate people's impression of you by editing out your failures and only presenting what you want to present. And you know, for an attention whore like me, that was a really, really major thing. Yeah. So I loved making videos right out of the gate. And I determined that my career should be in advertising. I thought I love making videos. You know, I could make videos like TV commercials. I want to be a creative advertising guy. 
So that was my plan when I went to the University of Miami in 1992. But I really struggled to make it to class. And, and I was already um, exhibiting real signs of substance abuse. So I failed badly at the University of Miami. I got kicked out of the dorms. I was just failed out of classes. I upped and dropped out. And as I left the University of Miami in 1993, you know, people were asking me, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to become a crazy, famous stuntman with my video camera. And everybody felt genuinely sorry for me. This was like, <laughs> this was truly tragic oh. on every level. Every, you know, people who loved me like really were the most upset by how tragic this seemed to what be. What did your dad think of this? You know, I, I didn't even have contact with my dad for a solid six months after I dropped out. And that was really just because I didn't have any good news to report. I didn't, I wasn't up to anything that he would have been really happy to hear or, or proud of. And I, I think he raised me with too much pride to, you know, call him up and say, hey, I'm doing really bad. You know, can you help me out? Mm. So uh, I never, I just went off the radar and, and traveled around. I had the government testing drugs on me for money. And the more dangerous the drugs, the more you get paid. So I was oh like God. really good going for drugs that they were trying to make legal to pump into pigs and cows. <laughs> Do you feel like you have any effects of that? No, okay. no, no. Uh, the only thing <laughs> is like I got, I, know of. I got a lot of free medical attention out of that and learned that I have a very powerful heart. All right. Really low heart rate. Like a heartbeat in the four, in the 40s like does the trick for – Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in, in any case, I, I struggled for for some time. It, and, and yeah, like that was just my deal. I thought I'm going to be, a, you know, a crazy famous stuntman. And um, I, I would have loved to have tried to be a professional skateboarder, but I just wasn't that good. And the thing about skateboarding videos was that even a skateboarder would find it monotonous to watch nothing but skateboarding for a solid hour. So from the beginning of skateboarding videos, there was always like comic relief, like just crazy chaos to break up the monotony of the video. And I made it my purpose to provide that comic relief. You know, I was going to be like the crazy guy doing the crazy thing in the skateboard video. And there was one particular uh, publication. It was a magazine in skateboarding called Big Brother, which really, really focused on that kind of attitude, irreverent, just crazy chaos. That's what brought us all together, the Jackass guys. Really? Yeah. And, and they made these videos periodically. I mean, the magazine was unbelievable. It was so shockingly unbelievable. They, they drew ire by putting out a kid's issue like they they would have different themes of their of their issues. They would have like like serious articles about like you know the ten most effective ways to kill yourself. Like they thought that was funny. Yeah, you know, like like how to buy crack in a you know in a you know like they were like going out of their way to just be shockingly inappropriate, and that was their whole thing. And uh, 
you know, they stirred up a lot of controversy, at which point the magazine was purchased by Larry Flint. Oh, Lord. Okay. I mean, dude, they were, it was shocking. They had like professional skateboarders, like, like crucified on, you know, they had like, they had one magazine cover that was a professional skateboarder dressed up as Satan, do, like doing a big jump over it, like a literal huge pile of burning Bibles. <laughs> like, I mean, every way that they could possibly be offensive. They they went for it. Do you feel like it was like pushing the edges of art or it was just people trying to piss other people off? Um, in the beginning with Big Brother, it, it was um, the spirit of it wasn't quite so wholesome as the spirit of Jackass. And I know it's counterintuitive to say that the spirit of Jackass is wholesome, but I strongly believe that it is. Yeah, I could see that. Because, uh, you know, there's just this camaraderie. There's... There's there's nothing hateful or, you know, like nothing mean spirited. And, you know, even though the stuff we do to each other and ourselves is is really pretty terrible, like we sign up for it. Yeah. So it's permissible. And it, the, the spirit in Big Brother it was it, it was a lot darker. OK, it was certainly a lot darker. And it, it, like a lot of it was just <clears throat> shocking and offensive for the sake of being shocking and offensive. But I loved it. When they went on a skateboard tour, I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they came through and I just tracked them down. I was like, I'm going to be in the magazine. And, and not only was I in the magazine, I was in the hospital you know, because uh, I did this thing where I set all the hair on my head on fire and, and I invited this professional skateboarder to use my flaming hair as a fire breathing torch and so he would blow the fireball and I would stick my arm in it. And my arm was doused with flammable liquid. So then when my head was on fire with the fireball coming off and my arms on fire, then I would do a, a standing back flip and simultaneously while flipping through the air, use my flaming arm as a fire breathing torch. And I'd spit the, the flammable liquid. It's a really cool stunt. But to tell me you're going into a stunt like that, which was like one of so many that you've done and still do. What is your like? Are you like this is about to be so fun? I I mean, it's always just like, OK, you know, th this could go bad. This might hurt. But like once I have the footage, that's going to be so valuable. And, and that one actually, you know, I, I hadn't done all of the various components of that so many times that putting them together sequentially like wasn't that crazy for me but the pro skateboarder who spit the fireball off my head had no experience and because I wanted to put my arm in it it made sense for it to come from the side and he blew the fireball just point blank into my face and so from the shoulders up my my whole head was just engulfed in flames and my best thinking in the moment was I better hurry up and do this fire breathing backflip. <laughs> so I did that. Oh my God. But, but I kind of came up short on the backflip. So I landed on my knees and kind of toppled over. And so like it took another beat to kind of get up and start putting my, my face out of, you know, off the, putting the fire out. And I kind of, and this all happened at a backyard keg party. <laughs> oh my God. You know, nobody even threw their beer on me. Uh, you know, there's one guy in the footage, he's like, oh, man. And he turns and says to the like, here, hold my beer so you can go come and help. It's like, dumbass, throw your beer on me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was how I got in, kind of into the mix. And um, 
the magazine was just so crazy. Yeah. It, was, it was just so crazy, and, and I loved it. Yeah. Um, then I was in the magazine, and periodically they would put out these videos, which which served as like fully like behind the scenes. You get to see like the pages of the magazine come to life, and um, their their first video was called "Shit." Uh, the second video was called Number Two. <laughs> and the third video was called Boob, which they made a big deal out of. If you hold it upside down in a mirror, it says poop. Uh, and then the fourth <laughs> video was called Crap. <laughs> so, they, they, you know, kind of scatological. And um, I was in the boob video. By this point, the third video, I mean, it, it was like they, it was, they had like this kind of a cult following a little bit. And... Um, the the guy in charge of the magazine, Jeff Tremaine, he uh, knew Spike Jones from when they were kids. Like they had come up together in the world of BMX in Maryland. Okay. And and uh, Johnny Knoxville had become like, you know, a thing and in the in the Big Brother magazines. Okay. And he was a skater. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
Now, Johnny Knoxville, his story was kind of like the the Bad Company song, uh, Shooting Star. Like, if you switch guitar with video camera, as soon as he graduated high school, he says, you know, Mom, I'm going away. I'm going to be a big star. And, you know, he went out to L.A. when he was 18, straight out of high school, and kind of floundered. He, he had some success with um, television commercials. But like it was all just kind of auditioning and waiting to be picked. And, and uh, you know, as he approached 30 years old, he thought, okay, I'm going to like stop waiting to get picked. I'm just going to kind of make people notice yeah. me. And, and so he uh, put out this, this mass proposal to like all media outlets saying that he wanted to do a product review of self-defense equipment and that he would start by getting sprayed point blank in the face with uh, mace, like red pepper spray. And then he would be uh, you know, zapped with a, a stun gun and then shot with tasers with the, the barbs and the wires. And, and he would evaluate the, the efficacy of, the, of each device. And then at the end, he, was, he would put on a bulletproof vest and, and just shoot himself in the bulletproof vest with the 38 caliber handgun. He said all he needed, if it was going to be in a magazine, he wanted the standard word per word rate for writing. And he was a freelance writer. If it was going to be on, like, he, he sent it out to all the top late night talk shows and, you know, all this, like, he was willing to do it in the studio on Howard Stern, like, wherever. He just yeah. wanted to get the attention for doing it and put himself on the map. And uh, everybody flatly denied his request. All he asked for was, um, he he's like, I do need a bulletproof vest. Yeah. I remember, like, because I had him on my podcast when we went over this, and, and uh, the bullet, I thought the bulletproof vest was like 5,000. He was like, no, I got a used one for like 500 or something. <laughs> like, you said something like that. But yeah, the only media organization which accepted the offer was Big Brother magazine. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Tremaine said, I will have, I won't be there. I'll have nothing to do with being there. Right. But if you live, but, but, right. but make sure you video it. Yeah. Cause he was going to actually just do it to write the article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it was Tremaine who put the emphasis on videoing it. And so Knoxville videoed it and, and uh, the footage was unbelievable. And that was featured in the second big brother video. I came into the mix for the third Big Brother video. And by that point, there was just this cast of misfits yeah. in the Big Brother videos. And and Knoxville and Tremaine, um, they reached out to Spike Jones together saying, hey, like our Big Brother videos are really a hit, but nobody really cares about the skateboarding. We, we're thinking that if we subtract the skateboarding, like all of the lunacy that remains could be a TV show. Mm. And so it's just so, for me, it worked out like so wonderfully well because I wasn't good enough. I, I would have loved to be the skateboarder, but I just wasn't good enough. So yeah. I was like, oh, I'm just going to be a maniac. And, and it, was the, it was just the being the maniac part that got traction. So all the... Others, you know, once they removed the skateboarding, then what was left over was was Jackass, really. And what was the pilot for that? What did you guys shoot? It, the the pilot initially it was like the the you know they just subtracted the skateboard and they put together like VHS tapes, kind of like how South Park started. I heard. Oh, really? And they just kind of within the industry, they sent around video tapes and 
there began a, you know, there was some HBO, they had a meeting that, and it went terribly, but Comedy Central and MTV both really, really liked it. MTV, of course, like ponied up the budget for whatever the, the, and and the, the pilot was really just old stuff cobbled together. You know, it wasn't like they really had a budget for it. I don't think. So when you get to that first episode, do you guys have a plan? Like, how did you even come up with what would be in a in an episode? It, it was going to be just a Big Brother. I mean, but then again, certainly when the pilot was being put together, they they had no idea what it was. I had um, this kind of a side thing where I became a professional circus clown, and um, like legit. Yeah, I had <laughs> I had applied to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College before meeting up with the Big Brother, uh, you know, crew in Albuquerque and burning my face off. As I was still with my face burned terribly and and peeling it off my pillow every morning with all the stuff oozing out of it, was when I found out that I was accepted into clown college. Nice. And I thought, oh, well, I was scared that I wouldn't be able to put on any clown makeup. They uh-huh. said I couldn't be in the sun for like six months, but I heal really well. So I healed up like right away and, and I, I went off to clown college. And um, Wait, hold on. Where is clown college? It like, was in are Sarasota, there dorms? Florida. Like, okay, so you go to Sarasota, Florida. How many people are in your class? 33 people were accepted into clown college. So there were 30 three uh, clown college attendees. And are you still in touch with the other clowns? Some of them. Really? Yeah, some of them. And um, it, it was much less like college than boot camp. It was kind of like boot camp for circus clowns. It, it happened over like one summer. It, it was an eight week program. Does this still happen today? No, they, they, um, God, that'd be a great show. They, they, they closed down Clown College after my class. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had the, the class of 1997 was the final class. Um, and it had been a tradition since, uh, since the 60s. Like they, the 1968, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus was, um, bought by, uh, you know, this, this company. And, and they, the average age of a clown at that time, was like 50 years old and they didn't have a way of like recruiting new clowns. So they started clown college. <laughs> wow. And it was a big deal because they held auditions for clown college everywhere that the circus went. And by the nineties, there were, the circus was always in two places because there were two units and each unit, the red unit and the blue unit had their own schedules of 50 cities in America. And then they would swap. So you knew that if you went to the circus one year that you could go back the next year and it would be a different show. Cool. And then they would revise the shows. What is the audition for Clown College? It was um you they they did not want anybody showing up in clown makeup. They didn't they they didn't want they, they felt like anybody who had any kind of experience with clowning like would be annoying because they would want to un untrain that. They wanted people yeah. to have no right idea. To be green. Yeah, said green. No clowning experience was kind of was very important. I, I lived in Albuquerque at the time. I lived with my sister. She found out about clown college because um, she she had a job. She was um, a journalist for the Albuquerque Journal, and in the bathroom there was a book of trivia. Which um, she found a question: What's the only college that has no tuition? 
And the answer was Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College. Like, if you can get in, it's free. Cool. Because they wanted equal opportunity for people to become clowns. They didn't want like a barrier for entry. So my sister thought of me. She thought like, oh, with my, you know, I'm going to be a crazy stuntman. I wasn't really getting anywhere. And and I thought, well, you know, if I graduate from Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Billy Clown College, then all of a sudden I'm a trained circus professional and people are going to have to take me seriously, you know, for as a stuntman, you know, like yes. I'm going yeah, yes. I'm the only guy going to clown college <laughs> seeking legitimacy. Yes. And, you know, I came home and she had the number on the table and I called up and said, oh, yeah, you know, they, they, they mailed me an audition schedule, which uh, it, was, it was just like a, a calendar, effectively, of auditions. And um, I looked for Albuquerque on it, and that was below the line in the middle for the class of 1998. And I thought, oh, they're not here until whatever. So I just kind of forgot about it. And I went off to go smoke pot with my buddies. But when I got home, my sister said, how are you going to get to Denver by Monday? <laughs> because she looked at the whole list and there, that Monday was the audition in Denver. So I hitchhiked from Albuquerque to Denver. You know, I'd met, I met some random chick who gave me a ride as far as Colorado Springs. And then uh, I, uh, I talked to a waitress at Denny's into driving me the rest of the way to Denver. The audition was at... Um, at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, about 60 people showed up. It was kind of like this, it's an empty auditorium, looked like a dance studio kind of a thing, you know, big empty room. And they said, okay, um, these two people led the thing, they started the, the audition. They said, nobody should be um, nervous or afraid of us because we're not important, we're just circus clowns. But this camera that we're holding is the eyes and ears of somebody who's very important. We don't want to waste their time. So everybody line up against the wall. And one by one, we want you to jump in front of the camera, say what your name is and why you want to be a clown. And then get, get out of the way and then keep, keep it moving. So, you know, people are jumping, like they're, they're getting in front of the camera. They're like, oh, I want a pair of big shoes. Eh, you know, and, and I, <laughs> like, I was kind of chomping at the bit. I was like, oh, man. And when it was my turn, I jumped in front of the camera. I said, my name's Steve Glover. I'm an aspiring stuntman from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I just hitchhiked all the way from Albuquerque to Denver because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, or maybe I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering if I missed out on the biggest opportunity I ever had. And then I did a perfect standing backflip and got out of the way, you know? So like right out of the way, out of the gate, I made like a pretty good impression. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Once everybody had introduced themselves, we went into these sort of improv exercises which were clearly designed to weed out anybody um, 
with inhibitions. You know, they, they said like, okay, now we're going to do an exercise. There's an imaginary line down the center of your body. And like the left side is a lazy cow grazing in a field. And the right side is a wild baboon throwing a temper tantrum. And so like, show us that it's like, you know, they just wanted to see people just let loose. Yeah. And, And I just put myself right in front of their video camera and just, just went for it. You know, they had like other, like kind of weird mimics. It was just all stuff like that. And you find out that day that you get in or no, later? No. Okay. Um, at the end of the audition, they said, okay, so now that you've all auditioned, now you can get an application. That was the deal. You, you couldn't even apply to Clown College unless you were physically at an audition. You had to audition to get an application. And they said, um, now, now, now you can get an application. But before we give it to you, we want you to know that, like, that you'll be compete like a this app you're you're applying for something for a job that is going to pay you i think it was like 300 bucks a week and you're going to live in uh like a closet like not even the size like six foot by three foot is like the the space of your living quarters if, if you're on the train it's like a cushion that you prop up against the wall and if it, but if you put it down to sleep on it, it takes up the entire floor. Yeah. You know, like you're going to make no money. You're going to like, you're going to live in this little closet on the train. You're going to work 50 weeks out of 52 weeks of the year. Like it's not a glamorous job. And if, you, and if, you know, if you're not like really passionate about like, you know, about then don't even bother. Don't even bother. And on top of that, the application, itself is eight pages long and you have to answer like when was the last time you cried and why you know like really like kind of invasive personal wow. questions like it was it was it was gnarly i remember Do you have a better understanding now of why they had all of that in place it was it was because it was fucking sacred <laughs> it was like really? it was it was uh of it was sacred is the only way I can describe it. You know, like they, they effectively, you know, discouraged me. I wasn't like against it, but I was like, Whoa, you know, like they were kind of like trying, they, they they only wanted people who were serious about it. They made that really clear. They weeded out people with inhibitions and people who weren't like all in. That's cool. And, um, I remember thinking, I didn't want to hitchhike home. So I remember like scraping together money. I didn't have to, um, buy a Greyhound bus ticket to get back to Albuquerque. And I just kind of put away the, and I had showed up with like printouts of like my best stunt pictures, like a stunt reel video, like the the whole thing before I even get, got there. Like I gave them all that. And, um, after I'd been home for a couple of weeks, there was a phone call saying, Hey, we're just putting a, we're like eagerly anticipating your application. Once they said that, I was like, oh, all right. And I went, I went to town, cool. filled it all out. It, it was a big deal. Like statistically speaking, because they held a hundred auditions every year and like all, the, you know, all these people showed up, like um, it was statistically harder to get into clown college than Harvard. And it was a big tax write-off for the, for the circus too. Mm-hmm. So like they spared no expense and like really – making it a thing and um yeah i burned my face off and then like the next day or something i i find out i got in 
and I show up. It was in Sarasota, Florida. Day one, they didn't have dorms, but there was an apartment complex, which was right across the street from the Sarasota Opera House, which was the big this big theater that, that it all happened in. They had the Sarasota Opera House just rented or whatever for like the whole the whole eight weeks. And then um, the apartment complex, it was just all clowns and like five marine biology students. So like the first morning we come in and they have like just like crazy confetti and it's just like this big thing and this big welcoming thing. It's kind of like you got like a, a golden ticket for yeah. Willy Wonka kind of yeah. thing. Like they 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 made it really really special and um they uh they they gave us all um a makeup kit. They said that the you're not uh, we're not ever going to give you any instruction whatsoever when it comes to putting on clown makeup. We're just going to give you the makeup kit and you're going to just do it. So that was the first day and we go into the makeup room and we all just try it. Nobody has any respect for how like how far just a little grease paint goes, you know, like, cause just a little kind of goes a long way. Yeah. And so we're all just disasters of grease paint on our face for the most part. And they're waiting when we come out of the room to take an embarrassing picture of our first attempt. But then the next day we do it again. The next day we do it again. They never gave us any. So by the time the eight weeks was over, everybody had legitimately stumbled on their own, like, signature look do you yeah. still have pictures of your signature oh look? yeah for sure how fun yeah uh-huh. so every day you're at clown college you're wearing every like day we full put on costume not full costume because they um tailored like custom ta- they, they would get a sense of our personality and and you know maybe skill level but like and they would they, they designed a custom what was called an agent suit so if you make it into the circus that's what you're going to wear when you're in the circus wow. they made mine to be like punk rock you know i had like big my, my clown shoes were big red leather combat boots how sick and i had like this colorful like leather like kind of punk rock biker leather jacket and i had a big spiky hair like a punk rock clown nice and uh we trained 14 hours every day it was like eight in the morning doing you know? what like, like physicality or it was i mean it, they, they would break up the day into like hour-long things um every morning was like 8 a.m stretch kind of morning workout and then there would be like an hour of just focused on dance it was like dance class then an hour on like improv an hour on acrobatics How an hour fun. yeah an hour on skills an hour on like just straight clowning you know an hour on even they, they had circus history which was like kind of that's the cute. most boring hour. Uh, and then, like, they would um, – that would go through – like, there would be a break for lunch, and then it would that would go through until 5 p.m. You know, maybe, like, have a little break to eat some dinner. And then it was um, three hours of just, uh, like, elective, like, preparing for the weekly show. So, one – like, every Saturday we put up a show – in the Sarasota Opera House, which is kind of cool because Elvis performed there, and and it, and and Sarasota, Florida, is like kind of a circus community. Like the they had the the Ring John Ringling Museum there, oh, and like wow. all this stuff. So all the sideshow freak people live there, and so the show would be free to the public, 
and which would, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be packed, but it would be like a healthy, good size audience. And we would perform like the, the clown gags that we had written and devised and rehearsed. And we would put up the shows so that we'd have experience performing every week. You know, there was, I think that was we had so fun. Yeah, we, like had, we, had, we had summer. a show every week. Yeah. And the, the eighth week was like the gala show, which was attended by the owner of the circus. Wow. Who would handpick the clowns. Because only 10 of us got contracts. So it was like a, a reality, like you're off the island show before oh they had that. Oh, my gosh. This <clears throat> is crazy, Steve. Yeah, it, it was it was rad. It, it was It was super rad. You know, I, I made kind of a bad impression, like the because because we would be in the in in the facility at eight a.m. and we would like train until ten p.m. So yeah, that's fourteen hours. You know, minus breaks to eat, um, and then at ten p.m. Then I'd get drunk, <laughs> you know. Then I get, then I'm gonna start drinking. Yeah, so I'm drinking until like two in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, I'm drunk, like two in the morning, and then I gotta wake up and you know do it all over again. Yeah. And uh, in the first week, because I was skateboarding was still my thing, and and I was like, I was just like fireballs and fire breathing backflips and drunk and skateboarding like every night. Like like it wasn't enough for me. Like then I'm, now I gotta get everybody. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I was jumping my skateboard down this staircase that had like kind of a a beam you know, supporting the the balcony above it. And I hit my head on the beam and like pretty badly, like kind of gashed my head. Like I clearly needed medical attention. And I said, I'm not going anywhere until I get a photo. You know, somebody's got to take a photo of all this blood pouring down and I'm like covered in blood. Like, ah, and I got the photo and I just said, okay, all right, I, I get it. I, I got to go to the hospital, but let's make this fucking quick because I know this is a bad look. <laughs> you know, not the best first impression to be making in, in week in one. In week one, yeah. Yeah, and so I go to the hospital and they're like, yeah, you need like five staples to like staple the gash closed. And I, and, um, and I was like, whatever it is, f- fucking hurry because there are these clowns waiting in the waiting room and I do not want to keep them waiting. I really need to hurry up and get the fuck out of here. I think I was like, okay, cool. I'll just shoot up. I'll just to give you this anesthesia inje- you know, injection to numb it up. And I was like, I don't have fucking time for that. Fuck the, the in- injection. Just, just pump in the staples. <laughs> the guy had like never even, I don't think, heard of that. But but he pumped in one. I was like, cool. Okay. You know? Wait, do you feel like you have like a higher pain <laughs> no. tolerance or? No, I just have a, a, my, my, my need for attention outweighs my need for comfort. Got it. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so like they pumped in all five staples and the guy was like, all right, well, you're not going to be able to get these staples out. Like, this is not going to happen. Like, you have to come back and you have to come back to get them out because if it heals over it, then that's like super bad. And I'm like, this guy just challenged me, you know? <laughs> so when it was time to get the staples out, like I'm trying to get them out. It's tough. You know, it's like really tough. And we got all the, not all the clowns, but the clowns I was cool with, you know, like kind of everyone's ch- trying to get them out. We couldn't get them out. You guys are trying to remove the staples from <laughs> Yeah, I don't, oh have to, I don't want to have to go back to the hospital. I don't want to need to draw attention to this. You know, like this is a, a, a battle to, you know, once I showed up, like I was kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to win. But yeah, and ultimately we figured it out that, that um, like wire cutters, you got, like you can't, there's no way you're going to pry those staples out. You got to cut 
the staples into two pieces and then take the two pieces out separately. <laughs> no. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it was pretty awesome. Um, How did you get from clown college? Now you're a clown. While I was in clown college, the my issue of Big Brother came out. Okay. You know, it, it had a little sidebar article called The Burning Boy Festival. And, and it said um, at the bottom, and Steve-O just got accepted into... Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Billy Clown College. Way to go, Steve-O. And, and Big Brother, they got a big kick out of um, out, out of the fact that I was a, a, a clown. Wow. It kind of endeared me to them. And, and I, did, I wasn't one of the clowns that got. Oh, you didn't get a I contract. I didn't get a contract. So Jackass was your backup to becoming yeah, a clown. Yeah, even, even more than that. Like one of the clowns, Ambrose Martos, was so generous. He... Like loaned me twenty bucks, like so that I could afford a Greyhound ticket home from Clown College. Wow! We like we we rode a bus from Florida to Washington D.C. for the International Children's Festival, and we performed like with the the cast of Sesame Street. Cute. And then from D.C., it was like, okay, everybody goes home, and nobody knows who got the contract. And my buddy Ambrose, he helped me buy my my Greyhound bus ticket. I went home on the Greyhound bus with this two thousand dollar punk rock clown costume, and my phone just never rang. You know, mm-hmm. like I hung the clown the clown costume in the closet. I just sold weed, and I, I remember like being really heartbroken that I didn't make it because I'd fallen in love with that dream, and and I would have like dreams about like I'm in the circus. And I would wake up and I wasn't in the circus. And I would would just have that, like, oh, you know, like, and I would wake up, like, kind of heartbroken. And I was selling weed, like, bags that didn't weigh what they were supposed to weigh. And and I was, like, I doubled down on my stunts. You know, at this point, I had, like, gotten the attention of a couple of skateboard companies that that sponsored me to do anything but skateboard, Mm -hmm. which was fun. And, um... You know, I was just filming for them, and and I put together this this video to send to all of the clowns who did make it to the circus, like to show them like how rad I was getting now. <laughs> you know, now I'm doing fire breathing front flips off the roof of the three story building into five feet of water. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like check me <laughs> out now. And what happened was crazy, was that there was a and that was why they closed Clown College because they were like really like doing this high level talent search to find like the like this incredible talent, and they were only paying him three hundred and twenty five bucks a week, right. and making him live on this closet. They couldn't keep the talent. Right. They got people that were too talented to keep for the bullshit that they were trying to keep them yeah. with. So everybody was defecting, and the um, people defecting from the circus. They were like, man, we're going to find a better gig than this bullshit. And so there was uh, some clowns in the circus that um, drummed up a gig for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines where they created a position called interactive performer. And the deal was that you would, the clowns would only be in clown makeup once or twice a week, but they would do pre-shows in the theater and they would have like a like create different characters roaming around the ship to entertain the passengers. 
It was pretty rad. You got your own cabin, so you know, like a proper like right. staff bigger cabin, than six by three. way bigger, and and it was like six hundred and fifty bucks a week, living large, and no no expenses, and you're on a cruise ship, right? You know, like open seas. It was a pretty cruise yeah. deal, yeah. And, and and they created this position, but they needed to fill some spots, and they had seen the video I sent to the circus, and they thought, oh, he might be good for this interactive performer thing. And uh, I got the job on cruise ships. That was pretty rad. I'm, I'm, I'm on cruise ship. But, the, but I was in this troupe of four clowns. The other three clowns, like, I didn't think they were rad. You know, I just didn't think they were rad. They didn't have awesome skills. Like, the, the stuff that they were trying to do to be funny, I didn't think it was really funny. It's, that was lame. Yeah. I thought they were lame. Yeah. And, like, I had my own little skill set of just, like, crazy tricks that like I felt really confident in in my ability to entertain passengers and just like be be kind of awesome. But the thing was that they were rightfully offended by me, the rest of the clowns in my troop, and they went to the cruise ship brass and they said, if Steve-O comes back for another contract, we all quit. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was this clown mutiny. Clown mutiny <laughs> on the open seas. Yeah, and, and, and to, my, to his credit, my my boss clown, who is not part of my troupe, um, Edge, Edju Shemovsky, he called a meeting with me when when we were together training for the the launch of the largest cruise ship on earth, and that was when they were launching this program. It was all training up to wow. that point. It was going to be the largest, the first ship that had uh, the interactive performers was. It was the fir- the first. For the maiden journey of the Voyager, which was the first cruise ship to have an ice skating rink on it, like the largest cruise ship, like passenger vessel in the world. Before we flew over to Turku, Finland, where they built the ship, we had to go there because there was a big fire on there behind schedule. We all get together to go to Finland. And the my boss clown calls a meeting with me. He says, look, I'm going to tell you something. And if anybody finds out I told you this, I'm going to lose my job. So you cannot let on that I'm telling you this. But the clowns in your troop went behind your back and made it. So you, I, I'm telling you, you're not getting your contract renewed. So you need to call up your skateboard buddies and, and get, get, get something else happening because this job is going away for you. For, wow. This job is going away. And those other clowns in your troop just don't have the balls to tell you that. And I don't want to let them do you like that by like you. I want you to start preparing now. And so I started, I called a big brother, you know, it sucked too, because I, then we went over to Finland. Now we're like, it's seriously like nuts and bolts. Like what we're going to do on the maiden voyage, like what's gonna, what's gonna happen on the Voyager. This is the end of my contract and then the beginning of the next contract is, the tail end is the maiden voyage and then the next contract begins. So I'm in Turku, Finland with these fucking assholes got me fired, learning scripts word for word, like learning, we had to learn how to, uh, a, a square dance number on stilts, you know, like <laughs> we had, to, I'd learn all these scripts, all these routines that were going to like pop up, like flash performance kind of deal in the middle of the ship, knowing full well that I was never once going to actually do it, do this shit. You got to get that paycheck though, man. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, and and I had to, and I couldn't let on to the other clowns that I knew that they got me fired. 
So it was just like this seething resentment. And I just, and and they never knew that I knew. Wow. And they never knew that I knew. I did all the rehearsing. I learned all the scripts that I knew I would never perform. And I was simultaneously reaching out to Big Brother. And I told Jeff Tremaine, who was the editor in chief, the boss of Big Brother, I said to him, Hey man, uh, and I had been on the cover of Big Brother already, you know, like uh, with doing, I was walking downstairs, like in a handstand with the skateboard balanced on my feet. And this other skateboard jumped down all the stairs over me. And it was the most epic shot. And it was the cover. So I reached out to Jeff Tremaine and I said, I'm on this cruise ship and, and like the, the guy is walking on stilts, you know, like on the, the pool deck. And every time I'm like the whole time, I'm just like terrified of like a strap coming undone or something, just somehow falling over. Like, yeah. So I got to do it. You know, I know, I know that I've just got to just do it and just tip myself over while I'm walking on stilts, but I'm not going to just do that. I want to have like my stilt costume on fire and like, so I'm going to light my stilt costume on fire. Then I'm going to have a unicyclist ride a unicycle through my stilts, you know, through the fire, through the stilts. And while the unicyclist is riding through the stilts, I'm going to have a skateboarder jump like off the roof of a house over my head and through a fireball that I'm blowing out of my mouth. And then I think that'll be a killer cover for Big Brother. (laughs) This is in like 1999. And I, and like through AOL Messenger, like I found a unicyclist in some other state and like I I put it all together and it was rad. I I bought, I I got stilt costumes made, torched three of them. Me and my my skateboard buddy, he had his fucking eyes closed going through the fireball I was blowing out of my mouth and he landed it. There was just like a leap of faith. We got the photo. And um, I flew myself out to California to make that happen. That was when I met Knoxville. It was on December 30th of 1999. Mm. And, and like having come up with that idea, like being like gnarly enough to want to do that. And like, like the, the initiative, you know, to like buy all the props and put it all together and fly myself out there. Like when I got out there to do that, Tremaine, Jeff Tremaine, he, he said, he said, all right, now, now you're here. Like, now I'll tell you we're not doing this for, like, a photo for Escape Magazine. We're actually doing this for a pilot for MTV. Cool. That's <laughs> and, cool. And they didn't know what the format was. Like, they had me sit down on, like, a bale of hay with Johnny Knox, who kind of interviewed me a little bit. And they didn't know if it was going to yeah. be an interview format or a desk or what. Like, but... um. We filmed it, and that that was kind of how I earned my spot. Yeah. You know, like I showed, like, what I was willing to do, and it was like, okay, we need this guy. How many seasons of that show did you guys Only do? Only three. Only three? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, because in my mind, it, it lasted out, so long. As soon as it came out, little kids were showing up in hospitals everywhere. That's true. Like, trying to copy the show. And, and then how many movies did you guys do? Uh, f- four. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, four wow. movies. Holy crap. What was that ride like for you? Not the actual stunts of it, but like just your life going from trying so hard and then all of a sudden it's I working. It was, I don't know if it was all of a sudden as much. I mean, it was. It was. The show, we, we couldn't do anything we wanted. Like I said, the, you know, when it got picked up. I mean, we, we couldn't even include what, what we filmed for the pilot because mm-hmm. we had no idea 
the fire was off limits. Yeah. So the the stilt stunt with all the fireballs and the stilt costume on fire, like you know, it it, it didn't make the cover of Big Brother. It was a the full page table of contents page. Mm. So yeah, it did go in there, but that one didn't wasn't in the pilot. I don't even know if I had footage in the actual pilot. Except just stuff that was in Big Brother magazine or in the Big Brother videos. There's nothing I filmed special for the pilot. But as soon as it came out, before the show even came out, they had rules. And when, and when I sent in all the video that I had and not, not one clip was allowed on TV, I thought, man, cool that we're going to be on MTV, but like what kind of a watered down, yeah. like wimpy version of this is it going to be? You know, that was my concern. You know, credit to Knoxville and, and Tremaine and Spike Jones, like for really becoming nimble and figuring out. It's like Mission Impossible, like climbing around all the lasers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's us climbing around standards and practices. Yeah. Like uh, nimbly getting, like weaving our way around their their rules and, and managing to be pretty crazy and what what's the goal in a particular stunt are you like how can we make people laugh how can we make each other laugh i would say make each other laugh yeah. is kind of the barometer we always have the um we always have like a peanut gallery like there's a group of guys kind of like looking on and if the peanut gallery is laughing then then that's how we know it's working that's right. like the barometer right if, Did we're you making, ever... if, if, we're, if we're laughing we know it's good yeah we were talking about that yesterday, like when your camera guy would start to throw up because yeah. he had a bad gag reflex. Yeah. And again, this is my favorite thing when someone's gagging, which is why I loved the show. But going through three seasons of the show, four movies, did you feel like this lasts forever or did were you? Oh, whole, God, no. No, you knew. You were like, okay, enjoy God, it. God, no. Make hay while the sun shines. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and like, I, I, lo I love that question. In the beginning, I think that with the video camera on top of being able to manipulate people's perception of you by editing, you know, what happened, not only does editing allow you to manipulate people's perception of you, but once you've created that edited version, like it's effectively forever, mm -hmm. you know, like, as I was on the way out of University of Miami and everybody was feeling sorry for me being such a tragic loser, like I lacked the basic survival skills to navigate the world as we know it. I could not make it to class. I could not, there was no hope of me graduating from college. I could not keep a job. Like any job I ever tried to have, I had been fired from everything. Like I had jobs for every denomination of days from one to like two weeks. Yeah. Like I got fired from everything. So I'm like, I, I can't, I, I'm not equipped to survive. I'm going to die like having failed at life. Right. And what I was doing with the video camera felt like a kind of a frantic scramble to pack my message into the bottle so that maybe I could be discovered posthumously wow. and be like the Van Gogh of the video camera. You know, whatever I believed, I was just like, this is it, you know? And I think that we all, if we're going to die in our 90s, we still have a crazy mortality complex. Yeah. You know, we got one instinct is to survive and one guarantee, which is we won't. Yeah. That's, you know? Oh, that's so real. 
So it's like people have different like ways to wrap their head around mortality. Like they have kids, so like they have a legacy. They have their religious, so they believe they're going to be in heaven, or they like create create shit that you know, like the cavemen in the in the caves, like scrawling on the walls. Like they knew that the shit on the walls was going to be there longer than they would. Yeah. So I had this belief that the video camera was like made was going to make me immortal. And and there was this this really powerful moment after one of the shows on a Saturday night in Clown College. We did have Sundays off. That was the one nice. day off. Everybody drank on the Saturday night after the show. And one of the five marine biology students was this chick in the apartment complex. And I'm getting hammered Saturday night after the show. I think I still had my makeup on. I was just like, didn't even wash off my makeup. I'm just already drinking. And, and I'm explaining to this marine biology girl that we're all going to die. Every one of us, we're going to be dead. But I'm going to still be alive because I got all this rad video footage. And people are watching these videos, then I'm not dead. So I live forever. Wow. And this girl just shook her head in disgust. Like, not like she was really mad or anything. She just thought it was sad. She said, she said, it's just kind of sad. You know, you think it's all about you. You think it's all about you. She said, how about this? She said, if I do my job, anytime a fish nibbles on a coral reef that I preserved, then I'm still alive. You know, you self-absorbed fucking wow. schmuck. You know, it's not all about you, you know? And, and and I remember being, you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I was humbled in that moment, but it did occur to me that that I was kind of self-absorbed in what I felt was important and 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 that she she was right, you know. And what is your perspective on that today? Well, when Jackass came out, you know, I believed the footage was just fucking forever footage is just permanent it's so it's so permanent and awesome and um when uh the the first season of jackass aired i was in florida still i'd been living in florida with my sister and it was a hit right away but i was why well, i wasn't living with my sister because she had kicked me out so i was actually homeless and i'd been fired from the circus that i was in at the flea market and i was totally broke and unemployed and addicted to cocaine <laughs> and homeless. Yeah. And a big With star. With a show on MTV. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just yeah. so we're clear. And, and, a, and a principal cast member on the biggest hit show in the history of MTV. Wow. And, you know, like I would, like people would ask me for photos or autographs and I would like legitimately be seeking to sleep on their sofa. Wow. And, um, and, and I was like just abusing the notoriety and the, you know, the power that the, my new profile afforded me, like, you know, just kind of not being a great guy, you know, not like just trying to hook up with chicks and just like, just take advantage of, of every opportunity that I could. And so those were my growing pains. And, and I, I knew that the way that I was abusing the power that, you know, what little power that I had, that I, I should get out of Florida. I was like, you know, I would like, I'm not doing right by by people like and and I'm blowing it like the, here's this moment I got to get out to California, 
I had made less than 1500 bucks after taxes for the whole first season of Jackass. I got paid per bit. If it was no way, yeah, not even per episode. I got paid per bit. Shut up. And if it if it was if it was like like really if it was like a legitimately dangerous thing where I could get super hurt, I got five hundred bucks per bit. But if it was just a like a low impact prank or something, it was two hundred bucks per bit. And one of my big bits was I swallowed a goldfish and barfed it up into yes, a fish I bowl. remember that. Could have totally choked on that fish and and died. But I had too much pride to charge 500 bucks for that bit. So I, I was like, I made a little menu of what I expected to see on TV after the shoot. I'd been bitten by a shark. I was like, that's 500 bucks. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, uh, you know, and, and then at the end of the day, whatever it was, like I got less than 1500 bucks and it was long gone. But the show was a hit right away. So they told me that um, they called me up and they were like, oh, the show's a hit. And, and the first season was eight episodes. They said, MT wants to order 16 more, and we know we got to pay you, so we're going to pay you 2000 bucks per episode for the next 16 episodes. And in my mind, I thought, like, t- t- like 16 times 2, that's $32,000. Yeah, I'm rich. I'm fucking rich, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's crazy, too, that, like, and just so in case listeners do not understand this. <laughs> That's not a good deal. <laughs> it's not a good deal. It's If you look right. at what MTV was making, right. it's a very different paycheck. I mean, later later on, Jersey Shore came along, and in short order, they were making 100 grand an episode. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know. When uh, like we started filming season two you know, you know, pretty quickly, but I had to film like half of the stuff, and then I wouldn't get half. After taxes, 32... A thousand, and I think they withheld the taxes for some reason. So I, it was going to be twenty thousand, but I was going to get half of that at a certain point. So I had a check for ten thousand bucks coming my way. Wow! And I was in Florida, and I called up Jeff Tremaine, and I was like, "I'm about to get a check for ten thousand bucks. I've never like had any kind of money like that." I yeah. said, "I said I'm going to put the check in my bank account, and before it even clears." I'm already going to be in the car driving from Florida to California yeah. to like seize upon this moment. Yeah. And Tremaine told me, he said, you're not going anywhere until you give me a list of like bits that, that you want to film in Florida and every single state between Florida and California. Give me an idea list for every state along the way. And if if it's there, then I'll I'll send out a crew, and the the production band will follow you across country. So I like wrote, wrote the bits. Yeah, I was like, I remember I said that in in Alabama, I wanted to go to a, like a black fraternity house on a college campus, and they just unannounced, bang on the door, and say, hey, like you know, like with all respect for your thing, you know, I just want you to know, I like. Couldn't help but notice that you guys have these crazy brands. Yeah. You know, and I wouldn't disrespect you guys by asking you to brand your fraternity thing. But what I really want is a brand of like a heart shape over my heart, like as a, a metaphor to show that love hurts, <laughs> you know? And uh, that was just like one of my ideas. <laughs> Like um, to ask the black fraternity guys to brand to maybe. brand new Jesus, um, but it came back that it didn't. My my list would suffice. So, right. so they they found, but um, 
the fraternity house situation wouldn't work because it had to be in a in a, a professional environment. So they found a, a local tattoo shop, body piercing shop, like to do the branding. Oh my god! So I did, did you get did, branded? I did, I did get branded in Alabama. Oh my god! It's funny. I got branded in L.A. Lower Alabama, <laughs> but when but when they submitted the footage of me getting branded, standards and practices came back saying, "We we told you that you were it was approved to film Steve-O getting branded, but like you've just submitted footage of sizzling smoking flesh. We can't show that." <laughs> so that was one of the things that was never allowed on oh TV. My God. And uh, you know, I made it out there. When I get out to California. Like, it's a big hit, you know, like, there, there's actually, like, different stuff going on. There's kind of a low-level rave promoter guy in Cleveland that had uh, inserted himself into the thing. He was getting me to show up different places and, and like, paying me pretty badly. But uh, I had money, you know. I had, I had the 10000 I had money coming in from showing up in, you know, different places. But when I got out to California, like, the – like the general consensus message that I was getting was everybody saying, I mean, you got to hurry up and strike while the iron's hot. Man. God, this- I hate when people, it's such a, it, it is the most common advice. Yeah. And it's like- so bad. It's so bad. Cause then you just, you make decisions you wouldn't normally make. You rush too fast. You go too hard. Like that's such a, I've. The, the, the show is going to be canceled and then you're going to have, you know, you're going to be done. You got to make some moves, make yeah. some moves quick. And, and that really frustrated me. It, it, it kind of marked what would be the next, like, you know, decades and even now, like. Scarcity. Scarcity. The, the idea that uh, it's all going to be over. Yeah. It's like, what, what do you got away. coming up? What's next? Yeah. You know, like anxiety inducing question. Yeah. Like, like don't fucking ask me what's next. Maybe nothing. Like, what right. if it's nothing? Fuck, right. fuck you. <laughs> you know? So was there, in the interim, what were you up to? Well, I, I, do, I, I just want to close the loop on the whole thing about footage being immortal. Okay. Because when I got to California, it became really abundantly clear that footage is not actually forever. <laughs> that footage has a very distinct expiration date. It literally expires the second it's been released. Mm-hmm. And as soon as your movie comes out, then it's gone. Yeah. As soon as your, your show's aired, it's done. You yeah. know, like as soon as something has, has been made public, it is expired and you are now only as good as whatever the next thing that you can yep. offer is. So like the the whole religion of the video camera really got wobbly and it rather than feeling that I'm immortalized by what I've documented I'm actually now just in this like frantic anxiety riddled just stressful scramble to kind of keep the spotlight on me you know like kind of like hustle and try to make something happen because you know like yeah. stay relevant or whatever and like that's scary and it's especially scary when you've got your only opportunities have to come from some asshole in a suit who some executive at a network or a studio who green lights your project yeah. and then you got to do it the way they want you to do it. You know, in the interim, to answer your question, we had like 
the TV show, and then I did this Wild Boys nature show, and then we did a second. Uh, or we, we did we we did three movies. By the time the third movie came out, it, it, it that was two two thousand ten. I had just been I just gotten sober in two thousand eight, so I was still pretty new in in recovery, and. The, the feeling was that, all right, a third Jackass movie, now you guys are like, you know, pushing 40. It's kind of not cute anymore. Like, it's over. Yeah. You know, and, and that, like, when I, when I was trying to, like, make things happen in the traditional sort of entertainment industry complex, like, it was just banging my head against a wall. Like, yeah. I couldn't get anything greenlit. You know, like, like the entertainment machine was just done with me was how it felt. Yeah. You know, I had gotten into stand up comedy in 2010. I started touring comedy clubs and I, and you know, I was getting by, but it, it wasn't there. There was no like sure, there, there no confidence that that was really going to be something. I was just giving it hell because it was all that I had and, you know, trying to make things happen and like. Then Knoxville is making a jackass movie without the jackass guys, the big grandpa or the bad grandpa. Oh, movie. right. Yeah. And I mean, nothing against him yeah. or, or the thing, but, but like, we didn't know what it was. Yeah. It was like, oh, there's a new jackass movie and we're not in it. Yeah. Like that felt pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and I had one TV show that, that, um, I hosted, but like I quit the show because, um, they had all the, these things with animals that like I wasn't comfortable doing. And then I was like, no more animals, I'm out. And so I got replaced and that was gone. And I just like got to a really pretty dark spot in 2013. And that was when a, a like dear friend of mine, my buddy Sam Macaroni, was like, dude, you got to get on YouTube. Mm. And and to me, that was the most like humiliating concept. Like, wow. wait, I've, like, I've, been, I've been in like number one box office movies, you know, three of them. I've had TV shows with my name in the title of the TV show. Now I'm going to turn around and upload YouTube videos. That felt like such a gnarly demotion. I had no idea that there was like a meaningful like way to make a career out of that. I just thought it was just low level attention whoring that like regular people do. Yeah. You know, my buddy Sam Macaroni just like really persisted with it. He, he, you know, I had an idea and it was, it was an exercise in just trying to maintain my sanity by doing something. Yeah. And, and, and I really like with Sam's help and, and he introduced me to some different people and I collaborated in a strategic way to launch my YouTube channel with multiple other channels driving traffic to it. Yeah. And I got like, I think like 120 subscribers, 120,000 subscribers yeah. in the first 24 hours. Yeah. And like when, when that happened, then like the big agencies like were reaching out through my, through my lawyer, like asking to represent me in the digital space. And it brought about this crazy rebirth in my career. And then like I had my whole thing with like, I, I was chemically sober since 2008 but like I was, I was really like being a scumbag, like acting out sexually, and so I like got proactive about addressing that and and really working to become the man that the love of my life deserves. And uh, part of that quest for me, just because of the way I do things, like I, I was like purely celibate, like I did not even relieve myself by myself for how long 
the entire year of 2014. Holy shit. It was, it, it came to 431 days. And I mean, it's pretty extreme. And like, yeah. I, I kind of stuntified my sexual recovery, my mm. sexual sobriety. But it was important to me because I wanted to not only establish for myself that I could do that, but I wanted to establish for my future partner that yeah. I could do that. I wanted to distance myself from being a scumbag and that that was how I did that. So when and you say you were you wanted to be the man you're become the love the of you become the man the love of your life deserved you didn't know the love of your Correct. life. Correct. Oh, that's now, cool. preemptively, I wanted to, to prepare it to meet because I would have been useless to that yeah, person. Yeah, that's cool. And in the world of like sexual sobriety, like it's pretty like not okay for people to speak up and say, I'm a sex addict. And, and I think that that's kind of bullshit yeah. because, um, you know, way better to say I'm a sex addict who cares about being a man in recovery who lives with integrity than to not say anything and be a fucking scumbag. Oh, yeah. You know, like so my lady is is grateful that I view it that way and, and that I like really like have uh, placed such importance on that. Yeah. And it just so happened that as a result of not blowing a load for more than 13 months, the entire year of 2014 was so <laughs> that like the 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 focus yeah. the energy was just so channeled like all of that like I was performing in comedy clubs and some theaters internationally and like if people were like heckling I was <laughs> I, mean, I was like I was so <laughs> irritable and I mean I've always like had like trouble with people disrupting the show because I'm an attention horse so like it's not like that's gone away right. but I would I would really snap over, over stuff and and I was it was it was pretty gnarly after I got out of this uh sex rehab like uh, intensive outpatient program I um enlisted a, a friend of mine to be my professional cock blocker He'd come on the road and we'd share a hotel room with two beds. Wow. And like he'd sell my merch. So we were always together. And he'd just from there like developed my merchandising operation, which had become like a pretty big thing. Cool. And like the, the, the year of 2014 began, I had less than a million Facebook followers. By the end of that year, I had 8 million. Like Holy shit. Uh, I had like, I don't know, like. A good few million subscribers on on you like I would like I had took control of my career back from the fuck faces that were done with me yeah and so that's what happened in the interim so cool I I, I religiously belligerently toured the comedy club circuit for eleven years. And like every week in a different city, Groundhog's Day, the whole thing, like the repetition, like, and and I really like kind of under the radar too because people were, you know, I, I didn't want, like, I wasn't really comfortable being like, hey, I'm doing stand up comedy. Right. I felt like people would kind of look sideways at that, you know, like oh, Steve O doing stand up. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I just kind of did my thing, and and eleven years in the comedy club circuit. And then, like, I got to a point where I graduated to big theaters. And, and over the course of, of my live comedy career, gradually it became multimedia. My world started bleeding together. Mm. Like, my first special was just me on stage with the microphone doing, like, some intermittent stunts throughout the show. My second special was me on stage with the microphone and like footage of the stories that I told 
edited in after the fact mm. in post-production like in interstitially to illustrate the stories that I was telling. Yeah. So it was like a, like a, a really original um, multimedia comedy special. But for that whole tour, I didn't use it as a crutch. Like it was just me and a microphone. The show was successful in its own right. Cool. Just when it came out as a special, it had the added yeah. layer of footage. But then the new one. Yeah. So the, the set after the second one, then I was like, okay, now I want to bring footage on the tour. Now I want there to be a like a multimedia component to the tour. And now I want my material to not be mined from my past. You know, like it had gotten yeah. a little bit like sort of living in the past, which yeah. was great. There was a lot of material, but I didn't want to live in the past anymore. I wanted to create new stories and I wanted to create new footage that was just far beyond like anything that I'd ever done before. So like lashing out at community guidelines, like, because that is frustrating. Yeah. I wanted to do shit that I could never even do for Jackass. You know, I wanted to do shit that like straight up just would be so gnarly. But to, why? To, to kind of just raise the bar, mm. you know, raise the bar for crazy. Like um, I knew that, that by going through with, all of the stunts that I call my bucket list that like it would lend itself to material because the shit's so crazy. And I did find the love of my life. You know, we met in 2017. Cool. So we've been together for almost seven years. Awesome. Like they would be impossible for me to do the things I did for my bucket list without there being dire implications on my relationship. Yeah. And in some cases, there weren't really dire implications. In some cases, what was fascinating was just how totally just okay with this shit. Yeah. That, that my girl was. You well, know? she would have to be. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 my bucket list special goes in sort of a descending order of my, my, my woman's support and approval okay so like getting to the one <laughs> it gets that... more serious as it goes along and Got she starts it. not being there for the bits and like you know she starts like it starts like representing conflict that you know it's 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 that's why it's a love story well tell the audience where they can find it where they can watch yeah, it where it, they can gag and freak out november 14th is our is our day for going live okay cool and it's so utterly forbidden that um there's never going to be a chance of this being on Netflix. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring it to Netflix and I brought the uh, Jeff Tremaine, the director of Jackass yeah. over to my house to screen, um, you know, one of my performances and with all the multimedia baked in. And um, Jeff Tremaine said that he applauded me. Congratulations. Cause I had, I've outdone myself. But this wasn't going on Netflix. Yeah. He says, there's no part of this. This is all so gnarly yeah. from start to finish. So like, where can we stream it's it? At, it's at my website. Okay. I partnered with uh, a company called Moment, which uh, to bless their hearts because they, they were able to, you know, they, they were willing to get involved with this. Yeah, it's it's very meaningful that they helped me do this. It lives at stevo.com. Cool. I've blasted the trailers and everything around the world. My girl, Lux, my fiance, her name's Lux. She's a production designer. We met on a, on, on a job and um, her idea, because like what I'm doing is multimedia, 
she, she wanted to like kind of bring that together with the stage set. So in this like epic theater with four tiers, like four levels of audience, this beautiful theater in London, England, and Lux found in London, England, more than 100 old school retro television sets to build a seven foot wall that's 24 feet wide, not including the wings wow. made, out, made out of TV sets. She came up with that idea, found all of the TVs, all of the TVs fully functional, by the way, all wired together, simultaneously uh, presenting the show cool. with me on stage and, and up to the seven foot wall. The, the, like the top of the seven foot wall is the beginning of the LED wall that the, wow. the, 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 the vignettes play on. There's Very 10, cool. like there's, there's 10 videos, 10 items on the bucket list. I can't wait to watch. I want to <laughs> hang out with you all day, but I know you have a hard stop and I want to be mindful uh, yeah, of your that? time. Thank have you, you ever had out. anybody not shut the fuck up less? No, I, the, my only sadness is I feel like I have about a thousand more questions, so you will have to come back. I would love to. Yeah, it was really cool to. hanging out, man. Hey, thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah, of course. Right on. Yeah, go to stevo.com, everybody. Perfect. Yeah. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.